Um, so yeah, um, we're coming to our penultimate lesson in the, our study of First and Th Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And we're up to chapter two and we're going from verse 13 on to chapter three and verse five. As it appeals to me, the first part, verses 13 and 14 of chapter two, are a celebration. That's a great thing for us to do. Verses 15 to 17 appeal to me as an exhortation from Paul to the church. And chapter three, verses one to five, as an aspiration. So we'll have a think about that as we read it. Celebration, exhortation, and aspiration. And these three stages or phases in, in what we're going to read are laced by a golden thread that reminds us of the grace and the faithfulness of God. And that provides us our title today in verse 16, which is God-given eternal encouragement. So we'll see that laced through these um, themes of celebration, exhortation, and aspiration. So let's see if you can spot those themes. They might be a little subtle as we read the uh, passage together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. But we always, sorry, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Let's consider the idea of celebration. It's verses 13 and 14. But we always ought to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says we ought always to give God thanks to you. And that's really what drew my attention to this idea of celebration. Paul was saying to the Thessalonians, we um, ought to be celebrating you, that is the product of his, his work. And why would he want to celebrate the Thessalonians? And there's three things. He says we are loved by the Lord, and were chosen by God and were sanctified by 
the Holy Spirit. It challenges me to think about whether I've celebrated my brothers and sisters in prayer to God. It's kind of an odd thing. Um, Paul saying, you know, as I think about you, I, I thank God for you. And as I thank God for you, I do so because I'm looking at you through his eyes. And what do I see? I see people that are loved by the Lord Jesus. I see people who are chosen by God from the beginning. And I see people who have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that I might see my brothers and sisters through, through God's eyes, a God's eye view of you. And when I see that, it gives me a, a very different perspective on things because I see people, brothers and sisters in Christ who are loved by him, who've been chosen by him and who've been sanctified by him. One of the things that we notice from these verses are the triune or the, or the work of the triune God. We see that the disciples Paul was thanking God for were loved by the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. You know, I wonder if that's a reference to his sufferings. The Lord demonstrated his love for us, didn't he? Ultimately, in his sacrifice at Calvary. And Paul is saying, I celebrate you before God because the Lord Jesus demonstrated his love for you by dying for you. And still in, in verse 13, and he did that because from the beginning, God chose you. And it's uh, an amazing thing, isn't it? The sovereign choice of God. It's a mystery to us that God would choose us, but he did. And Paul's celebrating that reality, um, God's sovereign choice of his friends in Thessalonica. And he says, he saved you through the sanctifying work of the spirit. It's a similar scripture in 1 Peter chapter one, where we get, the triune work of the Godhead together. Uh, if we turn to that, it's 1 Peter 1 and the first two verses. And Peter says to God's elect, as a nod to uh, God's sovereign choice again, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and uh, sprinkling by his blood. Isn't it great to see the harmony of Scripture? But there's a slightly different emphasis that's worth pointing out when it comes to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To the Thessalonians, Paul is saying that they were sanctified um, or that they were saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. I do think that's salvation from the penalty of sin. And if we go to Ephesians 1 and 13, it, it talks about the Holy Spirit being a seal that, that marks out those who are in Christ. 
and we're in Christ when having re received the message we believed. I think that's what Paul is talking about in this passage when he's mentioning the sanctifying work of the Spirit to salvation. Peter was talking about the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience and it's the sprinkling of Christ's blood that's corporate obedience that relates back to um, the sprinkling of the people of God back in in Exodus but it's a it's something to celebrate that um, Paul was enjoying what God had done for his friends in Thessalonica and that's just something I would challenge us to do to celebrate each other um, because of what God has done for us. Verse 14 says, he called you to this, that's to those prior three statements, he called you to it through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling, it's uh, again speaks to us about God's sovereign choice. And to me, I, I mentioned at the beginning through through this um, sequence of thoughts that Paul is giving us, there is a thread of God's grace and faithfulness. And I think it's here in verse 14 in this idea of us being called. He called you into these three things and he called you as a consequence of the gospel that Paul had preached to them. It's a mystery. It speaks of God's sovereign choice. And it also speaks of a purpose. God doesn't call somebody for no reason. Um, used to play a stupid game at work with people who came into the office and you'd add your conversation and just as they were leaving, you'd say, oh, by the way, and they'd turn around and say, yeah, well, how far would you have been if I hadn't called you back? It's a, a stupid thing. And God never calls us for us just to be stopped in our tracks. He calls us for a purpose. And of course, the purpose is explicit, explicit in verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and in what sense can we share it? You know, this was something that was a, a high profile issue in the mind of the Lord on the night before his crucifixion. We haven't got time to, to do it, maybe some homework here, is go and explore the burden that the Lord had that his disciples might know his glory. Uh, explore it in John 17, that's his prayer. But I just like to think of three expressions of the glory of the Lord Jesus. The first is his pre-incarnate glory. Uh, we were thinking in the remembrance in Manchester this morning of a, an interesting expression in John 12 and 41, where John says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And this is Isaiah the prophet, 750 years before Jesus existed. And of course, our minds go to Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted. We know that um, 
vision that Isaiah had. And I do believe that the Lord was the Lord Jesus that he saw. And of course, he went on to speak about his glory. That's not the reference that precedes John 12 and 41 that John was talking about. But Isaiah's prophecy is full of beautiful pictures of the person and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Starting in, in chapter six with his pre-incarnate glory, I believe. Then we have also in John, John 1 and 14, we have seen his glory. That's the glory of the incarnate word of God. Um, the one who, the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And is that not the expression of the glory of the Lord Jesus in his life and in his relationships with people during his life on earth? And John summarized it by saying his glory was full of grace and truth and it was on display. We have seen his glory. And then there is another sense of the glory of God, which is an amazing truth. It's we are his glory. We are the product of his sufferings. Lovely expression in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Let's look at verse 14 again. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the challenge is, to what extent am I um, portraying the glory of the Lord Jesus in my life, full of grace and truth? And his reason for calling us, he doesn't call us for no reason. He's calling us that we might be transformed into his likeness. So wonderful things to celebrate. And that was Paul's delight as he reflected on his experience with the Christians in Thessalonica and having addressed the kind of theological difficulties and their confusion around the return of the Lord he gets to this point and he's just delighting in in what they have become as a consequence of God's grace and faithfulness uh, to them and the challenge to my heart is to for us to celebrate each other in prayer to God. We said from ex uh, celebration to exhortation, which is verse 15 to 17. So let's just read verse 15 to start with. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So an exhortation is an instruction. And having celebrated the wonder of God's grace and faithfulness to his friends in Thessalonica, he's now saying, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the teaching. I um, looked up the word stand and I looked up the word um, hold in the Greek and it, it took me back to the Old Testament. And that's not because the same word is used in the Old Testament. Uh, because, of course, it's Hebrew, but it did take me in both cases to a scripture in 2 Samuel 23. And it's the description of the valiant 
accomplishments of David's mighty men. So if we go to 2 Samuel 23 and verse 11 and 12, we read about a guy called Shammah. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troop, troops fled from them, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down and the Lord brought about a great victory. You have this idea of a man standing in the middle of a plot of lentils, uh, not hugely significant by the feel of it, but he was there and he was defending it. And it says he just stood there. And that, that's what the thrust is behind Paul's exhortation for the people in Thessalonica to stand firm. It's be stationary. Don't budge, hold your ground. And it just took me to Shammah and that's what he did. And he received the accolade of being one of David's mighty men. That's the instruction to us, of course, the exhortation to us to, um, even though we might feel we don't have much to defend, it, it might be feel like a field of, field of lentils, not, not worth very much to us. It's precious to God. And we're encouraged to stand and defend, hold the fort. As we said at the beginning, not everyone's cup of tea that hymn. But that's the instruction. And we should take it to heart, shouldn't we? That regardless of what's going on around us, we should hold our own in the place that God has brought us to. And so stand firm and hold to the teachings. When we go back to the previous few verses in 2 Samuel 13, and we learn of a guy called Eliezer. So verse 9, next to him was Eliezer, son of Doai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pazdamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord about, brought about a great victory that day. Paul says, hold to the teaching, to the teachings. And the thought behind the word hold is to seize, to, to grab hold of and don't let go. And that's something that, um, the Lord, that, that Paul was so keen to be the experience of the Thessalonica, people in Thessalonica who were very vulnerable uh, because of false teaching and misunderstanding. He says, stand firm and take hold. We get to verse 16 and 17 and we revisit the golden thread of God's grace and faithfulness. Verse 16, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. We're not defending our field of lentils alone. God's put us there. And I love that expression, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is a, a kind of personal engagement and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Eternal, eternal encouragement is an interesting concept, isn't it? It's kind of encouragement that 
never ends. That's the way it reads. Why would it never end? Well, it's because of the certainty of our hope, the hope which never changes. And the encouragement therefore stays the same. Whatever happens, that hope is there for us to look forward to. And Paul goes on to say, encourage your hearts and strengthen you. And this is a heart thing we're talking about, a heart thing. It's what we love and we love it because it's it's about God's love for us. It's about his calling. It's about the sanctifying work of the spirit. It's about where we've been placed to serve. And the promise is that our hearts will be encouraged and strengthened as we do our work. And finally, uh, we've had um, celebration. We've had exhortation. Think about aspiration. And it's the first two verses we'll read of chapter three. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. This is Paul asking his friends in Thessalonica to, to, to have fellowship and pray with them and pray that we might be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. What was Paul's aspiration? that his witness elsewhere would be as effective as it was in Thessalonica. And his aspiration was that he might know deliverance from persecution. And having celebrated and giving, given instructions to the saints in Thessalonica, he's now saying, we're engaged in this together. Join me in fellowship, pray for us, um, that we might be successful and effective and protected in what we do so it's fellowship in prayer and it's fruitfulness the, the rapid spread of the word of god of the gospel and that it might be honored it's just something that paul was inviting the Thessalonican saints to engage with him in and isn't that so true in our prayer time we'll go into our prayer time in a second and we, we pray around the world often, and we're in this together, enjoying fellowship, sharing our burdens, and seeking that the gospel will be fruitful amongst God's people. Verses three to five, we visit our golden thread of God's faithfulness and grace again. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Strengthening, protection, direction, God's love and Christ's perseverance. What a combination of um, things that confirm to us God's grace and faithfulness in our experience. So 